This past week, I, I heard this specific quote from a sermon and a teaching that I was listening to that struck me. And I hope this morning that it strikes you as it did me. Here's what it says. Your church is as only as good as her disciples. It doesn't matter how good your praise, preaching, programs, or property are. If your disciples are passive, needy, consumeristic, and not radically obedient, your church is not good. We at Emmaus Church are only as good as our disciples. And this idea and this notion and this sentiment struck me to the core. It is one thing to gather. It is one thing to have fun. It's one thing to sing. It's one thing to have this miracle of a property. But if we are not radically obedient, resilient disciples of Jesus of Nazareth, we are not doing what we are meant to do and to be. And we are doing this teaching series because I care about that. I care about our ability to teach and train people to not only know the teachings of Jesus, but to obey the teachings of Jesus. In Matthew 28, in the Great Commission, Jesus gives the charge to his apostles He says, go into all the world and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded. And we've gotten really good, I think, at teaching Jesus, but not necessarily teaching people to obey Jesus. And I want us to be a community of resilient disciples of Jesus at the end of the day. Not just to be attenders, not just to be um, participants, but to be engaged in the way and practice of Rabbi Jesus by way of his Holy Spirit. That is what we are after. And we are only as good as our disciples. I was struck by that idea this past week. Now, Last week, I gave an overview of this Stages of the Journey vision series, and I wanted to provide a couple of reminders for us as kind of a recap of the intro teaching, which you can go back and listen to on uh, Spotify or iTunes or whatever it may be, to get an idea of where we are and kind of the why behind this vision series. And we call it a vision series because it kind of lays the groundwork for us moving forward into our ministry year as a community. It helps us kind of have a blueprint for what we are going to really press into moving forward. Last year, we introduced the rhythm of life. We're pressing more into that as a community. But now we are moving into the stages of the journey teaching series, basically asking this question of, where am I in my discipleship to Jesus? 
Because the invitation into discipleship with Jesus is an invitation into a journey of change and transformation. I don't know if you knew this or not, but Jesus actually wants to change you. He wants to transform you. He wants to transform your motives and your behavior, your desires and your inclinations. We see the call from Matthew chapter 4, the very beginning of Jesus' ministry with his disciples, where he looks at a few along the Sea of Galilee and he gives an invitation by saying, come, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. The invitation to come and follow is an invitation to a journey. And then the fact that he says, I will make you, alludes to the fact that he wants to change us. I think sometimes we think that following Jesus or the language of being a follower of Jesus is just some Christian cliche or sentiment. But it's not a sentiment. It is an embodied reality. It is... Uh, something that we are to engage in with the entirety of who we are. It's not an idea. It is a lifestyle. And so my hope is to bridge the gap between idea and behavior or lifestyle. So he gives this invitation for all of us into a journey of change and transformation. And the end goal or the telos in which we are to be moving toward is one of maturity. It's one of completeness. It's one of wholeness and even one of perfection. To be perfected in love, to be made whole and complete, and to be turned into and transformed into a people of holy love, marked by the fruit of the Spirit. If you're kind of like, okay, what is the end goal? What does holy love look like? Look at the fruit of the Spirit. Look at the life of Jesus. Now take note that fruit is grown, not given. Gifts are given. Fruit is not. Fruit is not. And honestly, some of us have dried up fruit. Or we haven't produced fruit in quite a while. And the hope is that Christ in us, by way of the Spirit, is cultivating fruit. You will know a tree by its fruit. And our telos, or our end goal, is maturity, or mature adulthood. Or ultimately, again, as I mentioned, completeness, wholeness, and even perfection. Now, again, I mentioned that last week. Some of you got antsy because I said perfect from the pulpit. And you're like, oh, my goodness. Like, where are we going? Is this true? And I mentioned, read the New Testament. Because this Greek word telos or teleos is another Greek word. It's everywhere in the New Testament. And this is our aim. This is what we are moving towards. It is completeness. It is maturity. It is wholeness. To be a people of holy love who bear fruit. But here's the beautiful aspect about this. Number one, we are not alone in the journey. We are not isolated. We are together, collectively, as a community. Jesus doesn't call just one disciple. He calls a handful to go with him together. The other great piece is that he is with us on the journey. He is alongside of you as you journey with him because he's invited you to follow him. 
He's not on some other end of the spectrum, on some other end of the journey and saying, okay, come over here, make your way over here. No, he actually comes to us, looks at you in the eyes, looks at you in the heart and says, come, follow me. St. Teresa of Avila says, the feeling remains that God is on the journey too. God is with you and I on this journey. Now, various writers of the New Testament parallel our formation into Christ-likeness to the biological development of humans from infancy to mature adulthood, as I mentioned last week. Very similar to Jean Piaget's stages of cognitive development in the realm of psychology, except on the formation side. So there's a parallel, there's a comparison between your your biological development as a human being from infancy all the way up to adulthood that mirrors your formational development in Christ-likeness. It's the same sort of process. In Colossians chapter 1 verse 28, this is kind of an anchoring passage for us in this teaching series. Paul says, he being Jesus is the one we proclaim admonishing and teaching everyone, key word there is teaching and everyone, with all wisdom, so that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. This is Paul's ultimate aim. In chapter 1 of Colossians, he is saying, this is what I'm contending for. This is what I'm after, that we might present everyone fully mature in Christ Jesus. My aim for us as a community is that we can present everyone fully mature in Christ Jesus. That you can enter into Christ college, so to speak. That you can enter into this new way of life that Rabbi Jesus has invited you into and that we are um, pursuing together with him. And so the question that I posed for us last week that we must ask ourselves is not so much what do I want to do when I get older or or what do I want to be, but the question is who am I becoming? Who am I becoming as a person, as a human, better yet as a follower of Jesus? And the question we have to ask is am I becoming mature or not? And then how do I know? And am I even moving toward maturity, or have I stagnated? Am I in the same place I was three years ago? Am I moving towards maturity or not? And if I am, how then do I know that I'm moving towards maturity or to completeness? But where we need guidance is an awareness of where we actually are on the journey toward maturity. We have to have marks. So what are the marks? We need marks. What is the map? We need some map of the the journey that we are on towards maturity. Now, this past week, Jordan and I took Selah on her very first hike. It was an experience, to say the least. It was wonderful and challenging all at the same time. I actually have some pictures for you. Here are some pictures from this past week. Um, this is a hanging rock, which has a very soft spot in my heart. Have you been a hanging rock before? If you haven't, you're missing out. It's a hidden gem. It's wonderful. I love it. Um, the right, this is in Tory's Den and Hanging Rock, and this is just another trail along the way. It was wonderful. But one of the things I noticed about the journey and about hiking, and if you hike, you know this, the path is narrow. And oftentimes, you do feel alone. 
And the way of Jesus, I started thinking to myself, when I was on this hike with Jordan and Selah, is exactly like this path on this hike. It is narrow. It feels sometimes isolating and remote, but it is full of life. Full of life. Full of vegetation. Think about the interstate. The interstate is nothing but asphalt and concrete. There's not a lot of life on the interstate. But there's a lot of life on a narrow path in the middle of the woods on a hike. And this mirrors the journey. It mirrors the way of Jesus. Jesus himself says in the Sermon on the Mount that the road is narrow that leads to life. And few, listen, few find it. Only a handful of people find this narrow way. But many take the interstate that leads to death and destruction. But something else I noticed on this hike in parallel to this Stages of the Journey teaching series is that at the trailhead, there is a big map. And it has this nice little marker that says, you are here. You are here. Here's where you are on this map. And that's helpful because without that, you wouldn't know where you were. And even as you go along the path, as you hike, you actually see markers that have been nailed into trees to help remind you that you are actually on the path. So we then have to ask the question, what are the markers in our formation to Jesus? Or we have to ask the question, where am I? I want to help you be able to say, I am here on the map of formation and on the map towards maturity. That is my ultimate desire. These markers help you understand or have an awareness of if you are moving in the right direction or not. Otherwise, you're just wandering through the woods, hoping and praying that you are on the path of the way of Jesus. But again, remember, he has invited you with him, and he is with you as you journey. And so throughout church history, the framework used to help answer this question of where am I is called stage theory. Stage theory. It goes all the way back to, as I mentioned last week, origin, to then St. John of the Cross, to Teresa of Avila, to Bernard of Clairvaux, to John Wesley, to now Robert Mulholland, Janet Hagberg, and one of my favorites, as you all know, Dallas Willard. All throughout church history, writers, thinkers, theologians, and practitioners have been trying to ask the question of where are you and how do you know? What are the stages of the journey? And so I've sought to develop this five-stage framework by synthesizing other versions of stage theory, my own experience, and looking at characters' formation and development and their change throughout the scriptures. Because I want you to know where you are. As I mentioned last week, there are a couple of things against us in the journey. One, oftentimes, is our lack of self-awareness. We just don't know. We're unaware of ourselves. And the second thing is that we overestimate our maturity. You either have a lack of self-awareness often, or you overestimate where you actually are on the journey. There were some moments in the hike this past week where I thought to myself, we're coming towards the end. And then I quickly realized after walking much longer that we were not. And that might be where you are this morning. 
you're like, I've been walking a long time with Jesus. But I feel like I should kind of be coming close to being done, but I'm not. And so here's the five stages. The five stages that kind of mirror a upward spiral. It's not linear. It feels linear, but life is not linear. I realize that. But the hope is it's much more like a spiral staircase moving upward. The five are moments with God, managing behavior, mission with Jesus, the movement inward, and modeling the life of Jesus. Now, in this paradigm, there obviously is a progression that mirrors the biological formation. You move from child to teen to adult to mature adult. And something happens at a couple of points along the journey, traditionally. At some point in the managing behavior phase, there is a shift as you move into mission with Jesus where you move from being self-centered to being Jesus and others-centered. The first two we're going to talk about this morning, but there's a shift that happens where you go from being self-centered to being Jesus and others-centered. And then as you are on mission with Jesus... There is a shift that happens and the movement inward begins where you hit something that writers have called the wall. Or what John of the Cross refers to as the dark night of the soul. And we will come to that point in the teaching series and spend a pretty significant amount of time talking about the dark night of the soul or the wall. And as I mentioned briefly last week, the story of the disciples on the road to Emmaus, I believe, are two disciples who have hit the wall. But again, Jesus is there with them, whether they know it or not. And so we're trying to tie all of these things in together. So that's the recap from last week. Are you guys good? You you track it with me? I'm hoping it's practical. I'm hoping that you have a curiosity and that you are pressing into this teaching series. As I said, I'm sorry if this is not an exegetical sermon series. We just did three months in Romans. You can go back and listen to it. Hopefully that appeased your exegetical appetite. This is more practical because I want us to be aware of where we are, and most of us aren't. You got me? You cool? All right, fantastic. So in this journey and in these stages, they all build off of each other as you mature, But each stage becomes more robust and mature. So you never leave one necessarily. They just build off of each other. Does that make sense? It isn't so much leaving one and entering into another. It's just that they are building off of one another. So today, I want us to look at the first two stages. That is my goal and my aim for us this morning. The first thing we have to recognize is that everyone's journey begins with a moment. All of you and your journey with Jesus, whether you are curious about Jesus, you haven't even met Jesus yet, you just heard about Jesus, or you've been following Jesus, whoever you are, wherever you are going, at some point, the journey with Jesus begins with a moment. And it's a moment of coming to the realization that God is real. That God is real. This stage is marked by encounter. It is marked by an encounter with a transcendent reality that is God. 
often accompanied by a strong sense of the vastness, the power, and the majesty of God. Whether you know who he is or not, you have some sort of transcendent experience. And at some point, that movement moves to a place of surrender, where you go, God is real, Jesus is real, and he has invited me into intimacy with him. But for now, I'm just captivated by the transcendent. I'm captivated and I'm marveling at the power and the majesty of something beyond us. All of us have had those moments before. Now, for me, I will say, I can go back. I can go back to the literal place where I first encountered the Holy Spirit. I can go there right now to the physical location and look at a place and say, that is where I first encountered the reality and the power of a transcendent reality that is God. I can do that. If I were to talk to you and hear your story, I'd love to be able to ask, tell me maybe some of the first couple of times you encountered the transcendent. Now, again, you may not have had a clue of who or what that is, but you encountered something. It was a moment. Some theologians refer to this stage as an awakening. Your eyes are, at some point in this stage, opened to the transcendent. Because here's the deal. The way the scriptures present humanity is that often we are living, living in a life where we are essentially blind. We are lost. We are walking in darkness. We can't even see where we are going. And there's a moment of awakening where the light gets flipped on in our life and we have a realization of God. And this moment is called awakening. Within this stage, you might enter into salvation. You enter into salvation in this stage. John Wesley refers to this as the doorway of salvation. Where you've walked through this moment, and you're like, this is all brand new to me. This is where you are made new in Christ Jesus. You are born again, quote unquote, to use Jesus in his conversation with Nicodemus. This is where the Holy Spirit comes in and indwells you as a person. This is an encounter with the transcendent God. Listen to what Rich Velotis has to say about the presence of God and encounter. Every person on the face of this planet is already on some level being encountered by God. The individual might not be able to cognitively perceive it or receive it, but Christian theology assumes God's active presence all over the world. What's needed is for Christ's followers to discern God's presence rather than assuming his absence. God's presence is all around us, and at some point you come to realize it becomes somewhat tangible, and you can mark it. There's a phrase, it's called memorializing theophany. And it's basically in the Old Testament where you see the Israelites marking where the presence of God moved. It's stacking 12 stones along the riverbanks to say, God moved here. It's going to places where revival has happened across the world. Memorializing theophany. You could go to these places where there's been an encounter with the transcendent. I'd love to know for you, where are those places? Here are some characteristics of this stage of the journey. 
The first characteristic, as I kind of have hinted at, is it's primarily a stage of encountering God. Sporadically, often. Sporadically encountering the transcendent throughout your life. Now, in this stage, it is marked by your feelings. You felt God. You got the tinglies. And you're like, was that how he loves the song? Or was that the Holy Spirit? We're not really sure. (laughs) We're not really sure. How come there are certain songs, the moment they come on, you're like, oh, I'm getting sweaty right now. What is happening? Right? Your emotions are tugged. You're pulled at your heart. You begin to feel the presence of God. It's marked by encountering. There's a sense of awe. Let's go back and look at the Exodus passage. In Exodus chapter 3, this is Moses encountering Yahweh for the very first time. Okay? Exodus chapter 3. Exodus chapter 3, verse 1 through 5. I'm going to put it on the screen for you guys. Let's read this together. Thinking about, again, this stage of encountering God or moments with God. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness. There's a key, key word for us here, in the wilderness. And he came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire within a bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, which Moses is a courageous young man. I will go over and see this strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. I'm pretty sure he sounded like Morgan Freeman. In this moment, talking to Moses, Moses. I can't do Morgan Freeman, Moses. Anyway, I'm going to stop now. Um, And Moses said, "Uh, here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your chacos or your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. This is Exodus 3. It's not 13. That's a typo. My bad. I apologize. Exodus 3 is where Moses has his first encounter with the living God in a burning bush. And it is full of awe and wonder to the point where he's like, I'm not even looking at this bush because I'm terrified. This is part of encounter. This stage can also be seen in the miracles of Jesus. Miracles where Jesus is healing blind individuals. He's healing a lame man in John chapter 5. And when he encounters the Samaritan woman at the well, there are multiple times where Jesus is, is healing people or has these strange encounters where people begin to see his divinity. This is marked by seeing Jesus as a miracle worker. God has come through for me. God has done great things in my life. I've seen him move. He's a miracle worker. You have an awareness that God is a miracle worker. And that God is vast. That he is beyond. In this stage, you kind of feel small. You feel small. God is huge. And you're fascinated with his beauty in some ways. Now, there are two ways that we usually encounter God. Two ways. One is through surprise. The other is through seeking. 
Surprise is reactive. This is where you're like, I came to church, honestly, with a friend, and I am not really into Jesus, but something happened. It caught me by surprise. Or you are out and about on a hike, and you have some kind of transcendent experience, and it's a surprise to you. God encounters you. For Moses, it was a surprise. He was being reactive to a burning bush. The second is through seeking. And this is mature adults in the way of Jesus. This is a proactive seeking the face of God, seeking his presence, knocking on the door. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened. If you seek me with all of your heart, you will find me. So it's through surprise and through seeking. Ruth Haley Barton in reference to this Moses encounter with the burning bush and with God, says the practice of turning aside to look is a spiritual discipline that by its very nature sets us up for an encounter with God. Moses could have kept walking. I would have ran away. But he stops and he looks to the side. For the mature believer you have a practice and a rhythm of stopping and looking to the side. For the young believer, you're caught by surprise. Again, a couple of ways in which we encounter God. My first moment when I was uh, a teenager and I encountered the presence of God, totally by surprise. Totally by surprise. I was utterly reactive. But over time, as we mature, we become a seeking people. Then there are three spaces, I think, where we consistently encounter God. I mentioned a couple of these, but here are three C's for you in terms of spaces where we encounter God. The first is crisis. Often we encounter God through crisis. You just lost a loved one. You just got diagnosed with cancer. You're going through a divorce. You've hit bankruptcy. Your spouse has had an affair. Your best friend of the last decade has betrayed you. You're in a crisis. And you discover the human condition very quickly. And you have one of those moments where you're like, God, if you're real. How many times have you heard people testify? God, if you are real, reveal yourself to me. There's a moment of crisis. And there's an encountering of God. The second is in creation. Again, whether it's some amazing, beautiful view, some mountain, some ocean, some sea, whatever it may be, where you're like, yo, God is beautiful. It doesn't matter where you are. Grand Canyon, you're at the edge of the Grand Canyon. Wow, this is way cooler than Greensboro, you know? (laughs) Or you're at some ocean, or you're in the Caribbean, or you're overseas in some other place, and you see something beautiful, and you're like, wow. You're at Niagara Falls. You're like, oh, my God. Like the create, there is a creator who has designed this. You encounter God in creation. Teresa of Avila says, reflect upon the providence and wisdom of God in all created things and praise him in them all. Created things are, are ways to stimulate our encounters with God. The problem occurs when we turn them into God. They are means to an end, not the end themselves. We were uh, hiking at the Upper Cascade Falls at Hanging Rock with Selah, and there was uh, a a couple that were there, 
And it was one of those things where I'm like, I'm pretty sure they just started dating because they kind of had an awkward encounter together. I'm not sure what's happening in their relationship, but it seemed very awkward just observing. I'll be honest with you. She was from Greece and he was from Stokes County, which you talk about culture shock. I was like, oh man, can I pray for you right now? Um, but she, she took her shoes off. She got under the waterfall. She started drinking the water off the waterfall. And she said, I want to touch the earth. I want to feel the earth. And it was as though she was becoming one with the earth kind of thing, right? And I'm over here thinking like, that was created by a creator who really wants you to touch him. But you're a bit off. It's beautiful, but let's go a step further. This hasn't always been here, but God has. We experience God in a unique way in creation. We need to give him praise and honor and glory. In fact, in your own formation, get outside. I heard a statistic this past week that said 90% of our time is spent indoors. Get outside. Go on a hike. Go for a walk. Climb a mountain. Go to the beach. I don't know. But go experience God's creation. Let it stimulate you and move you towards a place of encountering him and recognizing his goodness. The third place or space where we encounter God is in community. Again, you show up to a gathering, you show up to a church event, and you encounter something. And you don't know what it is, but you encounter something. So crisis, creation, and in community. Now, the second characteristic of this space is there is a recognition of need. You recognize that you have brokenness. You recognize that there's a need in your life. You recognize that there's a void inside of you. You've tried all the things, and they're not working. So you come to the realization, I have a need. I have a deep, transcendent need inside of my life. The third here in characteristic is there is an emphasis on God in title rather than Jesus. If you in your prayer life or in conversation constantly use God and don't move toward Jesus, then there may be the there may be the possibility that you're still kind of in this phase because God is still a title. Jesus is very rarely used. The language is, is, is focused primarily on the title given to God. It's impersonal. God is, is real, but he's far off. You write letters to God in your prayer life and send them off and hope they get there. This is the language that we use. It's primarily God language rather than Jesus. So God is real in this stage, but he's not intimate or close necessarily. It's, it's little moments that they're like dots on a map. They're not connected, but they're there. God is real. He's powerful. He is sometimes in the stage referred to as the big man in the sky. He's powerful, but it seems far away. There's a recognition of God's power and presence, but you might be distant from the person of Jesus in this stage. You also might be a Christian, but not a disciple. You might be a Christian, but you haven't actually embraced what it means to be a disciple. You have self-proclaimed, you have proclaimed for yourself that you are a Christian, you're a believer. But you maybe haven't moved into the place of being an apprentice or disciple or student of Jesus. In this stage, there's also this wow factor. You always are looking for another like worship hit. A dopamine hit. In some ways, God functions like a drug for you in this stage. It's kind of like the camp experience in the summer, right? You go to Young Life camp or you go to some church camp in the summer. 
You go to Victory Mountain Camp, shout out, come on. That's where I went, met Jesus, hello. But what happens often when you're young is you have that encounter, you're on a mountaintop, and then for the rest of the next year, you're leaking that dopamine. But it sustains you long enough to get back to camp the next year. And you get your little dopamine hit, and you're like, Woo, God, yes, I'm recommitting for the seventh time. Yes, I got 50 bracelets of all the things I've committed to on my wrist. You get that hit, and you start leaking again. Because it's not connected. They're moments. They're dopamine hits. It's feeling-centric. This is an aspect of this stage. But the question you ask at this stage is, who is God? Who is God? A.W. Tozer has famously said, what comes to mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. What comes to mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. And you're asking this question in this stage. As a young child, an infant, so to speak, in the way, who is God? You haven't quite moved to father yet. You haven't quite moved to Jesus yet, but God is real and God does love me. And you might be captivated by Jesus here, potentially, but you haven't necessarily committed to Jesus. But you're asking the question, who is God? Here's how you get stuck in stage one, okay? Are you guys following me so far this morning? Are we all good? Some of you are like, I'm not in this stage. I'm not listening. That means you probably are. I'm just saying. Um, Here's how you might get stuck. The first thing is by not moving into community. This is the whole, um, I'm all about God. I'm all about Jesus, but I don't do church. Okay, well, you're an infant. You're a child. I'm not being harsh. I'm being honest. By not moving into community, you can get stuck in stage one. You don't move past not moving into the church, not moving into the people of God that literally is where Jesus is. I just want us to know that. Like we are his body. If you're like, I'm with Jesus, I'm like, Jesus is with his people. So I don't know what Jesus you're spending time with, but he's saying come into community. The second way you can get stuck is by disconnecting the moment from everyday life. In this stage, you're still probably living a divided life. Friday, you went to the club. Sunday, you went to church. Y'all, maybe you've been there before, Right? Friday, you are wilding, and then Sunday, you are praising, right? You're living a divided life. It's not connected. For you, your entire formation is primarily about Sunday morning. It's a disconnection between the moments and everyday life. The third thing, as I've mentioned, is you worship your feelings. You're good when you're good, and God is good when you're feeling it, but when you're not feeling it, you are not in it at all, Okay? You worship your feelings, and this is a trap for us in our modern moment. We are a feelings-driven therapeutic society, and there are wonderful things. Feeling, as Pete Scazzaro says, feelings matter, but they're not your master. We have to know how to respond to them, okay? And we tend to worship our feelings in, in this stage and even into the second stage as well. The fourth thing here in terms of getting stuck is you're not learning Jesus, You're not learning Jesus. You're not learning about Jesus, and you're probably not spending time with Jesus. You just have these random encounters throughout your life. So what are some ways to move forward? What are some ways to move forward? A couple things. Practical stuff, all right? I hope I'm maybe preaching to the choir. Maybe I'm not. It's okay. 
The first thing is get into church. Get into community. Some of you are here today. That's moving in that direction. Fantastic. Get into church. Get into the community of faith. The second thing is embrace disciplines. Embrace practices. Read your Bible. Get into the scriptures. Okay? I remember that was one of the first things I was taught in high school. You meet Jesus. Now you need like 10 minutes a day. You need your little Bible, your little teen Bible, and your devotional, and you're good. That was kind of the beginning of the process. Now, there's way more to formation in life with Jesus than that. But that is a start. Embrace some sort of discipline. Because here's the deal. This phase is what M. Scott Peck calls the chaotic phase. Okay? In this phase, you need structure. You are kind of a hot mess. You're all over the place. You need structure, and you need some discipline, okay? Legalism is not a temptation in this stage at all, okay? You need some discipline, all right? And the the third thing in terms of moving forward is find someone worth imitating. Find a more mature believer or follower of Jesus who's further along in the journey, and look at their life. Look at how they live. Spend time with them. Now, here's where we go awry, is we often think that It's someone else's job to disciple me. And we don't take ownership for our own discipleship. I've heard it before, and it's okay, but some of of you might go to a friend or someone in a church and say, hey, friend, I think you follow Jesus really well. Can you disciple me? Now, not a bad question, but you have to own your discipleship to Jesus. Spend time with them, be with them, but you have to own your discipleship to Jesus. Jesus has called you to follow him, okay? Too many people get here, they're like, well, no one's ever discipled me. And I'm like, Jesus has called you to follow him. Get into the church, get into the scriptures, and get some discipline in your life. Now, find someone, seek someone out. Don't be reactive. People in this phase are reactive. You got to be proactive. Go find someone worth imitating, okay? We see examples of this all through the scriptures in terms of this mentor-mentee type of relationship, all right? So that's stage one, all right? Stage two, here we go. I'm going to try to go through this as fast as I can because that clock is looking at me like the enemy, staring into my soul. All right, stage two is managing behavior. In this stage, the dots between the moments get connected, They get connected. And you are more proactive in this stage. You're more proactive. You're not as reactive. There's some things about your life that's reactive. Some aspects are reactive, but there are other aspects where you're being proactive. You're starting to actually move in a direction towards something, specifically the person of Jesus. And we actually see this stage very clearly in the life of Peter. So let's look at Peter real quick, biographically, and you'll see Peter's stage two, all right? So, Matthew 15, 15, Peter says to Jesus, explain the parable to us. Jesus just gave a parable, and Peter's like, can you explain it? He's curious, he's learning, he wants to know, and he wants explanation. He's a sponge. You are a sponge at stage two. You're soaking it up. Peter's like, hey, Jesus, can you explain it? Because honestly, I'm so confused. You ever read parables of Jesus? You're like, what is this brother talking about? Peter's saying this. Explain this to me. We also see in Matthew 18, 21, 
Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times? Peter here is trying to figure out what he needs to do. Okay? What he can do, what he can't do. And he's saying, how many times? Can you tell me? And he starts trying to guess. Is it seven times? How many times? This is Peter's stage two. Here's, here's, an, here's another characteristic of Peter in stage two, all right? Matthew 16. We all know this moment, I think, most of us at least, for, for Peter with Jesus. Matthew uh, 16, verse 22 through 23. Peter took him, being Jesus, aside and began to rebuke him. He said, never, Lord, this shall never happen to you. Because Jesus has just told Peter and the disciples, he's got to go to the cross. He's got to die. And Peter, this brother, pulls Jesus to the side and starts rebuking him. Have you ever rebuked God before? Now, maybe you have. (laughs) You know, maybe you've gotten frustrated or you've gotten kind of disappointed, but rebuked as though you actually are wrong. Peter's doing this. He's rebuking the Son of God in Matthew chapter 16. Never, Lord, he said, this shall never happen to you, exclamation point. Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You ever been called Satan before? It's not very endearing. Maybe your spouse has said that before. And if so, we need to talk about your marital dynamics a little bit here. He says, you are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Peter, in this stage, thinks he knows more than Jesus. He is well-intended, but what happens in this stage, and it happens to Peter, is we want Jesus to want what we want. We want God to want what we want, to, to have his desires align with our desires, rather than simply wanting what he wants and submitting to that. We are cool with Jesus' will and his desires as long as it aligns with our own. Stage two. Matthew 18 excuse me, Mark 14, here's one other example. Peter insisted emphatically, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. Peter is full of himself. I will never. Like, whoa, that's a a strong statement. I will never disown you. He is arrogant. He is an arrogant child in the faith. How many of you parents got a kid that thinks they know a lot more than you do? I'm pretty sure Selah already thinks she knows more than I do. The way her, you know, little attitude gets sometimes. Bless her, Lord. We're trying to raise her up in the way of Jesus. She is a little bit reluctant right now. But where, you know, you have a three or four-year-old and they're like, Daddy, that's not right. Mommy, that's not right. Happening with Peter here. I will never disown you. Oh, Okay. Here's some characteristics of this stage as we run through them. The first is there is some intense Bible reading and learning Jesus. You want all the knowledge you can get. You are eating up knowledge about Jesus. You're in the Bible. You're in the scriptures and you're learning about Jesus. You're learning Jesus. You may even begin to actually cultivate being with Jesus in this stage. The second characteristic is you have begun to participate in small group community. You're participating in the church, but now you are into a small group space. The third is a very important characteristic of this stage, is that you're confronted with sin. 
and disobedience. Even though you are following Jesus and have been, you're saved, quote unquote, but you're confronted with sin. Primarily sins of commission. Things you continue to do that you shouldn't do. At this point, sins of omission are not quite part of the process yet in terms of things that you aren't doing that you should. It's more so you're doing these things and you shouldn't do them. Okay, you're still engaged in these activities and you're confronted with sin. This is the beginning of what the ancients call purgation, where you're beginning to be purged. It is here in this stage where you meet the cross. You've, you've heard the call, you've responded to the invitation in Matthew 4, but now we're Matthew 16 and Jesus says that anyone who wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, pick up their cross and follow me. You encounter the cost of discipleship in stage two and you have a choice to make. Do I keep going or do I stay? Do I stay in Matthew 15 or do I go through Matthew 16 and continue to walk to the cross? You are confronted with sin, oftentimes from someone else who sees it in your life. They look at you and go, dude, bro, sis, whatever, get your act together. This is not the way of Jesus. And you're hiding it. Hidden sin is rampant in stage two. Hidden motivations that you're not even aware of are rampant. All the external stuff that people primarily see that are on the periphery, good. But then you have one or two close confidants that go, hey, there's something here. What's going on? This is not Jesus. It's actually killing you. What's going on? And you begin to experience purgation. Robert Mulholland says, our cross is the point of our unlikeness to the image of Christ, where we must die to self in order to be raised by God into wholeness of life in the image of Christ right there at that point. So the process of being conformed to the image of Christ takes place at the points of our unlikeness to Christ. And the final step is confrontation. In stage two, you are confronted with your sin. And you're confronted with the impact of sin in other people's lives as well. Other characteristics are there's a security of faith here. You're like, I'm a follower of Jesus. I'm young, but I'm a follower of Jesus. I am a a teen, so to speak, but I'm a follower of Jesus. The fifth thing is you begin serving within the church, primarily. You begin serving, you're serving in kids, or you serve on the worship team, or with sound, or with connections, or whatever. But serving in this stage is primarily just about chunks of time or convenience. Whatever fits your schedule, rather than being a lifestyle of service and servanthood to Jesus and to his mission in the world. So how you get stuck? I'm going to try to move quickly here. Okay. The first thing is that you equate knowledge with knowing. Knowledge and knowing are different. Having information about is different than actually knowing a person. Obedience in this stage can often turn into being performative. It's about performance. I just got to put on the face and I got to look the part. Okay. Here, you can also get stuck through personal ambition and externals. It's really about your externals, managing your external life, okay? The second way you can get stuck is assuming that you have arrived. If you've come today and you've assumed, you think, I'm, I'm, pretty, I'm mature. You might be in stage two still. There's an assumption that you have, quote, unquote, arrived. There's denial of inner motivations that need to change. There's a lack of awareness of some of your inclinations. Uh, at this point, self-righteousness comes to the forefront, The Pharisees, right, they did it all right, quote-unquote, but their motivations were off. Self-righteousness is a temptation here or sins of omission, meaning things that God has asked you, like I said, but you're not doing it, okay? Actions may be there, but your attitude or motivations might not be in stage two, okay? So 
you've assumed you've arrived. The third way you might get stuck is you get comfortable. This is the fun stage. God, Jesus is fun in this stage. Being in church is fun. We're doing fun things. I got community. We're hanging out. It's me and Jesus. And I just kind of get at ease and you get lulled to sleep. And that's the place the enemy wants you. He loves people who are falling asleep in their faith in bed. You get comfortable. Jesus is teacher and even Lord in this stage, but maybe only certain parts of your life. There are other aspects of your life. You're like, I do not want him to be Lord over that. That's still mine. Okay? It's immature. It's part of the journey. It's okay. We're moving forward. The fourth uh, way we get stuck here is it's a me and Jesus type of faith. It's private. If you talk a lot about me and Jesus, I'm thinking stage two. It's private. The first two phases, as I said, are self-centered, whether it being feeling-centric or even behavior-centric. And and the second stage is behavior-centric. The first is feeling, the second is behaving. But in this stage, it is very private, and it's about me and Jesus. And the fifth thing in terms of how we get stuck is we tend to consume community or we hop around a lot. We hop churches a lot. Janet Hagberg calls these folks switchers, switching communities a lot. Preference reigns more times than not in stage two. It's really about your preference. Did I like it or did I not? Did I like the music? Do I like the vibe? It's about preference. And that's, you're immature, but that's okay. Again, we're moving. Here's a consumption of community, and you're kind of hopping around a lot. You're like, oh, I've been a part of this community for a long time. I think it's time for a change. It's been a year and a half. What? Like, oh, man, I mean, I'm, I'm getting exhausted of serving. It's been two and a half years. What? I'm burnt out. How old are you? 22. What? You know what I'm saying? There's an assumption that we're further along in this journey than we actually are. Okay? This is stage two. The question in this stage is, what must I not do? What can I do anymore? You're kind of asking, you're drawing hard boundaries. God, what can't I do any longer? But you're also asking, what can I still do? What can I still do? Very similar to the rich young ruler and the expert in the law in Luke, Luke 10, 18, who asked this question, what must I do, Lord, to enter into the kingdom of heaven? You're asking that question in this stage. So ways to move forward. Here's a few things. You need to begin to disciple other people. Seek people out, train them in the way of Jesus. Teach them the way of Jesus. The second thing is have an increased prayer life. Up at this point, prayer is probably transactional. It's mostly done at the dinner table and maybe right before you go to bed. Increase prayer life and awareness of different ways to pray. The third is having a sense of accountability. In particular, you need to have a space for confession in this stage. Confession is deeply important. And in this phase and stage, there is a humility check. I remember specifically when I was in college, I thought I was so mature. I was like 19 or 20, maybe 20 years old. I thought, well, I mean, I'm obviously pretty mature in following Jesus. And I had some hidden sin in my life. And I got confronted by some friends. And I had to confess. I had to share. I had to be honest about some things in my life. And it was deeply um, humiliating and liberating at the very same time. My flesh was totally annihilated. But my spirit was set free. And that happens in this stage. And as I stated last week, in my estimation, I think roughly 75% of professing believers in the U.S. don't make it past the first two stages. 
which means maybe three-fourths of this room. Don't make it past the first two stages. This stage more than likely, I think, represents a majority of people in our community. Here's Dallas Willard, and I'll, I'll close with this. And Anderson, you can come on up, and we'll wrap our, our time together. Dallas Willard says, The Pharisees were in many respects the very best people of Jesus' day, but they located goodness in behavior and tried to secure themselves by careful management at the behavioral level. However, that simply cannot be done. Behavior is driven by the hidden or secret dimension of human personality. From the depths of the soul and body and what is present there will escape. Hence, they always failed at some point to do what is right and had to redefine or redescribe or explain it away or simply hide it. Stage two, managing our behavior. At this stage, we are unaware of hidden motives or the inner life, but we seem to kind of get by managing our externals. But here's the deal. As I said, we experience all of these throughout the rest of our life, and we mature in all of them. We'll come back to them constantly. Sometimes we slide on the scale. We go back, and we go forward, and we go back. But encounter is the beginning of the journey, not management. Too many people say, I got to get my life figured out before I can be a part of church or show up or even know God. And I'm like, that's backwards. Where do you get that from? Not the scriptures. Moses was just out in the wilderness with a flock hanging out and a bush is on fire. (sighs) Plus, he just like murdered someone. No big deal, right? But encounter is the beginning of the journey. And both Management and encounter have their place in our formation, but we must always, I think, in our journey, return to the burning bush, whether if it's on fire or not. We need to go back to the place where we encountered the Lord. And this is a call of John in Revelation where he says, return to your first love. You've lost it. Return to it. And some of us in our formation, as we're maturing, you need to go back to that first moment, maybe even go to that place where the bush was on fire as a reminder of encountering the living God. I saw this great artwork this past week from a uh, mid-century Jewish um, painter, an expressionist artist named Abraham Ratner. This is a tapestry that you can purchase, by the way, for $27,000 called Moses and the Burning Bush. And I, I love looking at this. It was very interesting to me. But I'm like, this describes encounter with God. You're like, look, look at his eyes. They look like they can't even, he's not blinking at all. You know, like he is caught in some sort of trance, ecstasy. <laughs> but this is moment with God. And here's my invitation to all of you today is to be open to having a moment with God, to encounter God. And the beautiful thing is as we come to the table, I'm gonna get Jay and Corey to come on up. The invitation to the table is an invitation to encounter. It's an invitation to encounter the living God, the presence of God among us. And I hope and, my, and I pray this morning that you have had a fresh encounter with God. Is that all there is in the formation and all there is in the journey? No. But we need to return to the burning bush at times and be captivated by the transcendent. To realize we are small compared to this grand universe, let alone compared to the creator of the universe. 
And so as we come to the table, may this be a reminder that God wants to encounter us here at this table because of his broken body and his poured out blood, his sacrifice has made it possible for you to encounter him and to pursue him with confidence.